our guests. Sanjay, thank you so much for coming on. We hope you're doing really well during, during this. Yes. So, um, welcome. Okay, so let's start off with our questions. So, Noah, take the floor. So, the first question was people, I, I guess, are just curious to find out how did you personally get interested in baseball? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Pittsburgh, actually, um, in kind of like the early to mid 1990s. I, uh, you know, my dad was a big baseball fan. He was actually a Dodgers fan, but he would take me to games at Three River Stadium. And, you know, I was a big Pirates fan back in those days. And the Pirates are mostly not very good, unfortunately, for a long time. But so, you know, I grew up a Pirates fan, grew up going to games with my dad, um, you know, played when I was a kid and everything. Um, my friends were into it too, so everything kind of coalesced around uh, it being something that I was really into when I was young and just kind of stuck with it as I got older. You know, I became obvious pretty quickly that I wasn't a good enough player to go very far with that, but, um, you know, I was happy to contribute to the game in another way. Awesome. So one of our first questions is kind of related to what's going on right now and how, you know, everything's kind of on pause. And we were wondering that, I, we know you, that you deal with uh, minor leaguers development. And yeah. how is the development of minor leaguers stunted by what's going on right now? Yeah, it's a tough situation. I mean, for them, as for everybody else, you know, we have guys who are from all over the world, from Latin America, from the U.S., you know, from, I mean, Brazil, East Asia, everywhere. And so trying to keep you know their safety and their family's safety kind of at the forefront of um, everyone's concern i know our coaches and our personnel are working really hard um, to make sure all our players are just safe and healthy uh, for and then trying to stay really sharp on baseball skills during this time and more so more so just trying to make sure that they are generally staying in shape and um, you know that they're able to preserve their health um, there's definitely going to be a ramp up here whenever we get back on now, uh, especially for pitchers, you know, they're usually on a pretty defined throwing program. And so, you know, kind of working through a long pause like this, they're going to have to probably ramp back up when we get to the end of it. And so we're going to be really purposeful about how we do that to help, hopefully give our guys the best chance to, uh, be healthy and productive, but it's a unique challenge for sure. A lot of fans like to, they have video games. They like to make fun trades just like us. And a lot of people go off public farm system rankings when, you know, they're, they're looking at prospects. How trustworthy and reliable do you think they are? They're pretty good. Um, you know, I think BA, John Sickles does a great job. Um, you know, fan graphs, baseball perspectives. There's a bunch of different sources out there now. And, I know Eric Loggenhagen with Fangraphs is particularly does a really good job as well. Um, you know, doing their research, talking to sources with teams, trying to make sure they stay on top of things. I would say they do a pretty good job more so with the more famous players. I think it's tougher for them when they get down to guys who maybe haven't had as much hype because there's a little bit of an information asymmetry there, right? Um, and in particular, you think of the things that a team is going to know more about on their own players than the public ranker, public rankers, if that's the right word. But it's usually going to be related to, okay, what type of person are they? You know, are they somebody who really takes nutrition and working out and all that seriously? Or are they somebody who, you know, stays up till 5 a.m. playing video games? Right. Um, so, you know, that type of stuff can definitely influence teams. Um, I think there are definitely, when you look at you know, the public rankings relative to our perception, 
we're going to have a different order than the public rankings. Um, sometimes just because we're privy to information they're not, um, and sometimes just because our scouts or our models think something different than the rankers think. Uh, but I think that you know those sites in general do a pretty good job of making sure you know about a lot of the guys that you need to know about. Awesome. So what, what, we're going to go into some more specific questions now. So since the last time we talked, uh, the Mookie Betts trade uh, took place, which was you know a very confusing trade. The Angels ended up pulling out of a lot of um, a lot of things that didn't work, a lot of things that did work, and now we have this service time issue. Um, what is your view on this trade now, and what was it as the trade happened? You know, it, it's an interesting trade because I think the Dodgers obviously, you know, a really good team, you know, a team that would benefit greatly from adding an elite player like Mookie Betts because they're at the stage where they've, they've won so many regular season games. They're just trying to get that World Series trophy. Um, I think that the trade that they made is probably one that a trade like the Dodgers can afford to make where they're trading away future value in order to, to win in the present. Um, right. Obviously with Verdugo, with Maeda, um, I think that whether it's a good trade now is probably probably looks a little bit worse because depending on how much of a season we get to play. But uh, you know, if you know, Mookie Betts helps them helps them win the World Series, then I don't think they'll be complaining either. Um, right. So you know, it's it's good to see you know a team really going for it and swimming for the fences. But uh, you know, we'll see how that one ends up. Okay. Okay. You're saying. You're saying. So another big question is how older versus younger prospects are handled. I know that development is really, really, really important in baseball, obviously. And we wonder, yeah. there's guys like Guerrero who get called up really young, and people and people saw him as already really, really good, which he really is, and we're really excited to see him get better. And then there's also guys like Jacob Wagesbach who you acquire, and they're and they're old for a prospect. Um, how would you handle the two differently in terms of age groups? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, there's definitely no magic formula. If there was, uh, you know, people like me would be out of a job and it would be easier because, you know, definitely there are guys who surprise you. There are guys who get better. Um, I think in general, you know, when you're able to see something like what Vladdy did or what Bo did or, you know, an Acuna or something like that for the Braves, guys were able to hold their own in the major leagues at a really young age. That's obviously a great sign because, you know, on average, those guys just keep getting better. Um, and, you know, when you're Vladdy and you have seven or eight years or whatever until guys on average hit their peak um, and you're already a major league caliber hitter, you know, that's a great sign for a prospect evaluator. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why guys pay so much attention to age, um, and particularly because a lot of older guys, you know, will kind of beat up on younger competition and then you have to kind of try and adjust for that. Mm-hmm. I think one of the really cool things about an older prospect like Wagusback was, you know, he was a guy who – you know, really coming out of the draft was not someone anyone expected to be a major leaguer, right? You know, he wasn't really a huge performer in college, didn't have huge stuff in college, um, wasn't really a huge guy in the low minors, but, you know, he just continued to get better and keep getting better and better and better. And each year, you know, he improved a little bit more. Um, where most guys, you know, at some point they kind of plateau. Um, so that's, that's definitely a testament to him and his work ethic and his refusal to give up and, you know, give in to the fact that he, he wasn't as highly as high to begin with. Because, you know, most guys in that position, um, you know, they don't become something. You know, they end up flaming out in A ball or low A or something, and he's continued to improve. And, you know, he's a big leaguer now. Um, and time will tell how much value he has and in what role and, you know, what his strengths and weaknesses are. But 
it was really cool for us to see us see him have a little bit of success and, and make the big leagues and kind of fulfill that dream. Awesome. So just talked about Wagus Pack. We're going to talk about kind of the opposite now and kind of Nate Pearson, right? That already sure. has the hype, that performed well. And kind of what brought you other to Pearson other than his 104-mile-per-hour fastball? And kind of what was the process of drafting him and what made you draft him? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the things that made us draft him, you know, you guys can see, right? Like, you yeah. see him throw a bullpen, and it's, you know, he can obviously work above 100. He throws strikes. You know, there's a lot of guys who have that elite stuff who, you know, really struggle with the strike zone. Um, he's a big guy who can really hold his stuff in game um, and sometimes even gain velocity in game. So, you know, a lot of starterish attributes from that perspective. He has a full pitch mix. He has four pitches. You know, his slider is probably his second best pitch, but you know, he has a changeup. He can flip in a curveball. Um, so there were a lot of different starter attributes there. Um, and for us, obviously, you know, the big question in 2017 is on the one hand, it's a Juco guy who, you know, really hasn't faced a ton of elite competition. So your performance track record, you know, it's tough to contextualize. Um, and where the stuff kind of came on a little bit late. So, you know, it wasn't a guy who had been, you know, in first round consideration for five years, you know, or a guy who had been, you know, at the top of the, everyone's board forever. Uh, so for us, it was really a matter of our area scout at the time. Um, Matt Bischoff did a really good job getting to know the kid and a really good job making sure we had all the information to be comfortable with pulling his name in the first round. Uh, Tony LaCava, who oversees a lot of our amateur scouting, you know, had seen him as well. And Russ Beauvais, one of our senior scouts, had seen him. A lot of our guys had seen him, and our scouting director at the time, Steve Sanders, who's now with the Pirates, uh, you know, that was his first draft as scouting director, and he could have shied away from taking a guy that risky in the first round, but, you know, ultimately all the information we had um, about Nate as a person, competitor, work ethic, uh, stuff, obviously, was all really positive, and you know, when you, when you get all that stuff, you can either trust your evaluation or you don't, right? And, uh, right. you know, we decided we're just going to go with it. And, I mean, to Matt's credit and Steve's credit and all the guys who did so much work, it's worked out really well so far. And we're excited about what it could be over the next five, ten years. Right. So another follow-up question to that. So it's much harder to evaluate maybe how a pitcher does at the MLB level than maybe a hitter. Because you see, you know, Guerrero, guys like – young guys like Guerrero using El Diaz in batting practice that – you know, are completely ripping the ball, whereas you don't know how stuff is going to translate into the MLB. So would your formula kind of prioritize pitch selection or prioritize your stuff, the quality of your stuff? And where does that, what's your priority when evaluating pitchers? That's a really good question because I think it's kind of an age-old debate, right? Like stuff right. versus command. Um, and I think that there's definitely a certain command bar that you need to clear to be a major league starter. You know, there's not a lot of guys throwing to the backstop who are logging on immediate innings. Um, we also, you know, with TrackMan data, with PitchFX, with everything that's available out there, we have a lot of information on what major league pitcher stuff looks like. And, you know, if you're an amateur or if you're in the low minors and your stuff doesn't look that way, then that doesn't mean it's impossible that you'll make it. But, you know, it's definitely a roadblock. Um, so you're trying to... You know, ideally, it's a guy like Pearson who has has the stuff and can throw strikes and can, you know, maybe not be too fine, but can put it where he largely wants it. Um, but with a lot of guys, you're trying to pick between, you know, what what type of flaw you're you're willing to be comfortable with. Is it a guy who you feel really good about 
the fastball quality, you feel really good about the breaking ball, but you're not sure if he has a change up and his command's just okay. So you might have to go to the pen. Or you're picking, you know, a guy who can really dot and pitch on the corners. Sorry, the dog's really excited. <laughs> no problem. Um, but, you know, he, uh, he doesn't have the pitch quality you're looking for and you're projecting on that. And, uh, you know, there are other attributes that scouts will look for a lot, like, you know, looking at the guy's body. Is he projectable? Uh, the delivery, the arm action. But for me, it always kind of starts with, okay, is the stuff there and is the command there? Okay. So I just have another question about this, except for shifting that from younger players to older players. And uh, let's talk about free agency for a second. Last year, you went out and got Matt Shoemaker, who struggled the year before and then absolutely came out and dominated before his injury. Now, in spring training, it looks like he might actually resume that. How do you find a diamond in the rough like that in free agency? Like, what goes into that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, trying to weigh objective information about his performance or about, you know, the quality of his stuff, just measuring what's coming out of hand. Uh, you're trying to weigh subjective information about what an evaluator might see. Um, you're trying to weigh, you know, what type of person they are. You're trying to weigh, you know, they're really good about the command. You know, we felt really good about his splitter. Um, you know, we felt really good that he was a guy who was going to throw strikes and had a major league quality judge. And the concern for him, obviously, had always been medical. You know, he, he'd never really been able to stay healthy um, in recent years. And, you know, we just felt like it was it was worth the gamble of a guy who we felt like had talent and had the makeup to be successful, but maybe hadn't had as much chance to just pitch. Um, now, obviously, you know, that recurred with a totally separate injury last year. The guys had rotten luck, but we're hopeful that and he'll be a guy who can contribute for us. Awesome. So when you look at the Blue Jays catching situation, there's basically a log jam because there's so much depth. You know, you start off with the most highly touted uh, former prospect is Jansen, McGuire. You know, you have Kirk, you have um, Moreno, you also have um, Riley Adams. There's a lot of people there. And I was wondering what you, there, there's obviously a great value to catchers. But which one would be most valuable to this team at the moment and to this team in the future? Yeah, it might depend who you ask. You know, uh, a lot of people have different opinions about that. I think all those guys are really interesting. Um, Jansen, we feel really good about that the bat's going to be probably better than it was last year. And, you know, we were really pleasantly, uh, I wouldn't say pleasantly surprised because we, we knew he had it in him. But, you know, we were really positive about the defensive games. And I think he was a gold glove finalist. Yeah. Um, you know, McGuire's always been a glove first guy and you know, we hit pretty well last year, but we feel like, you know, the defensive ability, the catch and throw ability, the ability to receive pitches is all, all really strong. Um, so definitely, uh, you know, we don't take it for granted that we have two solid major league catchers and, you know, other teams have also noticed that we have two major league catchers and expressed that. Um, but, you know, we feel good about those guys. So I think we have, you know, the next three guys you mentioned, Adams, Moreno, and Kirk, are all guys that I think are going to catch in the major leagues. So, you know, they're probably not all ready quite yet. Um, so we'll probably have another year before we start having to kind of sift through that. But, you know, Riley has power. Um, he's a big dude with big power potential, good plate approach. Um, you know, a little bit of swing and miss, but has a chance to hit for power in the major leagues. Uh, and the defense has come on, too. Um I think Kirk probably is the best pure hitter with a really good plate discipline, really good bat-to-ball skills. It's really performed, um, you know, a little bit of an unconventional body type, but 
you know, his hands really work. Uh, he can receive really well too. Uh, so I think he could be, he could be a really good major league hitter. Uh, and then Moreno, I think maybe the more casual fans don't necessarily know much about him yet because he's kind of come onto the scene recently, but you know, signed out of Venezuela, I believe, um, really good athlete, former infielder, uh, can run pretty well actually, which is surprising for a catcher, um, moves really well, really good body, really good bat to ball skills. And he, he probably has, you know, has a above average now arm. So, you know, definitely we feel really fortunate that we have that degree of depth at the catching position. Um, and we'll see where it goes. You know, we know that not every guy is going to overperform what we have expected from them, but you know, we're very fortunate that we're, we're sitting where we are right now and can definitely credit the work that guys like uh, Ken Huckabee and Chris Schaefer and George Carroll and everybody has done down in the minor leagues forest developing those guys. Yeah. So, awesome. yeah. Thank you for that. So I just have another question about free agency. Obviously, the big splash can't go ignore bringing Hyunjin Ryu in for four years on an $80 million contract. So that's obviously a big commitment for a really, really, really good pitcher. What? But you've yeah. had injury problems recently. So what goes into the decision? How do you recruit someone like that? And then also, what goes into it looking at his injury history versus his ERA? And what made you decide to ultimately go after him? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's sort of a risk award, right? Because we're not blind to the injury history, just as you guys aren't. And uh, <coughs> pardon me. And um, you know, there's a chance that that could adversely impact the abilities to deliver for our team. But I who could be a front rotation starter to our team um, was worth taking out a little bit of risk. Uh, and you know, we've been fairly conservative, I think, in trying to you know avoid those large money outlays that could you know, could cripple our ability to compete in two or three years. But we think with Ryu, hopefully we're, you know, taking a well-considered risk on a guy who, you know, has, I would say, probably among the best command of major league pitchers, um, has a plus changeup, uh, you know, has really, um, and there have been some injuries in the past, but, Really, you know, Ross, I think, did a great job in the negotiation with Scott Boris um, and really being aggressive and pursuing you. And, uh, you know, it was fun to see the fan response. It was fun to see, you know, player response. Uh, and we're hopeful that he'll help us win a lot of games. So another question I have basically concerns this past trade deadline, where we seem to have brought in a lot of prospect value um, for the future. Guys like Simeon Woods Richardson, Anthony Kay, and also the addition of Derek Fisher. And the addition of Derek Fisher in public minds is often viewed as we didn't get enough for Aaron Sanchez, who got non-tendered, and ultimately we got the most sure. out of him that we could. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people are kind of looking past Derek Fisher as a possible outfield starting candidate and wondering, do you see him as a possible starter? Because we already see the tools. We see that he has power. We see that he has raw speed. I think he has either the highest or second highest um, uh, home plate to first base rate in the MLB. I think second to Mondesi, if I'm correct. Um, we see the tools, but He's do you think cool, those yeah. translate? Man, that's the million dollar question. You know, we uh, when we acquired him, he was a guy we obviously done work on for years. You know, he'd been, I think he was a comp round pick in 14, maybe at a UVA. Um, but, you know, it's always been the speeds there, the powers there, the plate discipline is there you know, can he get to enough of a hit tool, uh, you know, will the instincts get there to allow that to all play up? And so, 
you know, we thought he was a guy where it was kind of a compelling uh, tool set to add. And he's going to have to continue to perform. You know, he's going to have to, I think, you know, is that as well perform maybe a little bit better than he played last year. But we think he has the tools to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I think he's going to be, be a guy who's in our outfield mix and get chances to play. Um, you know, him, Anthony Alford is another guy who has some tools. Um, I think eventually the tools have to translate into performance to, you know, have a long major league career. But, you know, we're, we're taking a shot on a few guys who we feel like have some upside and hope that they, you know, can translate that a little bit. You know, on the trade itself, I totally understand the fans' frustration because, you know, Aaron Sanchez is a guy who'd been around for a while and obviously did a lot of good things in a Blue Jays uniform. Um, I think the tough thing for us is that given that we would have had to tender him in the off season and, you know, the way he performed, the amount of medical risk that was there, you know, we were seeing that as a guy where, you know, at that point, I think we were ready to, you know, to give him a change of scenery and then to get a player we liked back. Um, but, you know, really unfortunate that he got hurt. Um, would have rather seen him be successful with Houston, even though it would have made us look like dummies maybe. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think the last chapter's written there. I think he's a guy who, who has some ability for sure. Mm-hmm. So just another, I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> yeah, you did. Don't worry about it. That, that was really good. Thank you for that answer. So just another question here based on how the analytics of the game have shifted over time. You know, well, a while ago, it used to literally be just you watch a player and then you decide on the spot. And now it's really shifted into more stat-oriented rather than watching them on the field, which is still really important, but stats have sort of taken over. What's your view personally on how stats have shifted over time and how that's changed the game? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, I wasn't around in the game 15 years ago, but my uh, perception is that, you know, what guys like me used to do then was it was more about kind of like scouting the stat line and more about just looking at performance. And I think now what we have is almost like a fusion of, of scouting and, you know, the nerds where it's, you know, we both care about the same things and want to know, okay, does this guy have power? Does he control the strike zone? Does he have a professional plate approach? Can he make contacts? Can he handle velo? Can he handle spin? Um, How's his defense? So, you know, we're all looking at the same tools and trying to evaluate the same tools. And we're trying to get to that by fusing, you know, I might measure a guy's in-zone contact rate against 95 plus, whereas, a scout might see with their eyes, hey, this guy like has a late hand trigger and he just can't get to VLO. And so when we're trying to evaluate a guy, you know, you mentioned Simeon with Richardson, we're going to combine, okay, well, what can we look at analytically, whether that's modeling out his pitches and measuring, you know, type of movement he gets on his fastball and everything like that. You know, what can we look at in terms of performance, contextualizing that, and then, you know, subjectively, how do we feel about his body? How do we feel about his delivery? How do we feel about the type of competitor he is and the type of mountain presence he has? You know, how can we kind of, you know, look and say, let's just take the guys that perform the best and more to try and figure out, okay, well, how do we use all the information we have to make a good decision? In your mind, um, what was what is Kevin Biggio to this Blue Jays team? Because there, there are a lot of contradicting answers that I've heard. What are guys like Biggio and Guriel to this current team? And they're very different players, but what is their fit? Is Biggio one of the big stars or is he kind of a role player? More of a Candy Maldonado of the 1993 Blue Jays instead of the Joe Carter of the 1993 Blue Jays. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know, honestly. I don't know that there's, 
you know, I don't know what it means uh, to be a role player versus a star. I think he's, they're both going to be players who we hope will contribute value to our team. Uh, they're both guys we feel really good about. Um, obviously really different players, but, uh, <laughs> but um, sorry, the dog just walked in like that. <laughs> no problem. Um, but, uh, you know, with Biggio, I think he's a guy who is an outlier in a lot of ways, and that's really, really a cool thing where his plate approach plate approach, you know, never chasing, um, being a guy who knows himself really well and has power to the pull side, can elevate the ball, um, can play a variety of positions. I think that's really valuable in today's game because, you know, if you can just play second base only, then that's, I would say, a little bit more limiting than a guy who can play second and can play first and third and center and right, um, just because it allows the manager so much flexibility in playing the matchups and getting the best bats in there. Um, he can run to good instincts on the bases, so just a really good, well-rounded baseball player and help us win a lot of games. Uh, with Guriel, you know, very different player than Biggio. You know, he has, I would say, a more aggressive approach. You know, he's got big power at times. Um, you know, the defense, I think, has improved in the outfield compared to what it was in the infield. Uh, so he's another guy who, you know, as with Fisher, but probably played a little bit better last year, um, is going to have a chance to contribute a lot for us in the outfield. Another question I have, basically. So I know you just brought up Jordan Groshans. Yeah. And yeah. there's also, you know, an infield logjam. And where we seem to be, we also have, we have a logjam basically everywhere. But the logjam of the most talent would generally be viewed as the infield for the Blue Jays. And we have both Martinez and Groshans coming up with the infield that we currently have, which is almost set in stone. When you look at kind of what scouts have said about both of these two players, we've heard comparisons from Aurelvis Martinez to as great as Adrian Beltre. And we're wondering, how do you view kind of Martinez? How do you view Groshans? And how do you view them compared to, you know, Bichette, Guerrero, and the guys that are already up making an impact at the MLB level? Yeah, I mean, it's a tough comparison because I think you, you know, I don't know that they're quite in the level of those guys who are, you know, hitting in the major leagues, but, you know, two really good looking prospects. I'm really glad we have them. Uh, Groshans, our, our scout, our area scout who uh, covered him, Brian Johnston, did a great job in, uh, you know, identifying him and actually had him a Klopfenstein from the same high school. Um, you know, we think he, he potentially could hit in the middle of the lineup. Uh, you know, where he plays can be determined by, you know, how well his defense at short continues to evolve, you know, whether he was a shortstop or a third baseman. Um, you know, so far we've given him every chance to be a shortstop, and I think continuing to, to stick with that. Um, I think with Martinez, the same thing. You know, he's a guy who is athletic and has a really good bat and has power and has a hit tool. And so I think with those guys, you just keep letting them go until they – you know, until they struggle with something and it hasn't happened yet. Um, I think in terms of a log jam, you know, if we get to a point where both of those guys are ready for the major leagues, you know, I think, I think it'll be a good problem to have. Uh, I think we'll be able to figure it out or to find a way to play like good players. Um, right. But we're just thankful that that's the problem we're talking about now, you know, instead of, hey, man, who the heck's going to play third base for us in four years? Right. There's Geraldo, too. There, there's a lot of depth there at that position. And yeah, also a follow-up for Groshan specifically. So we, uh, I know we had a relatively high pick um, last year, um, year before, um, and we put pick Groshans, who wasn't on any of the industry rankings. 
and kind of pro was projected to go at around the bottom of the second round of the draft. And uh, Klopfenstein around in the same area. So picking the two of them, um, the media usually saw it as they're kind of avoiding the signing uh, bonus. So guys like Matthew Libertore, who were supposed to go maybe sixth overall, had fallen down to even past us to, I think, 16th or something to the Rays. And now he's on the Cardinals. Um, but it was kind of seen as a move where everybody was trying to get kind of, let's pay kind of the least and get the most value. Um, what else drew you to Groshans and Klofenstein specifically instead of some other guys you could have drafted? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so I think he was, I think Groshans was a little more highly ranked in that. I think he was more kind of like end of the first round or 20 to 30 for a lot of publications. But honestly, for us, like, we just thought he was the best player. You know, we, he was first on our board at that point in terms of talent. Um, you know, we liked Liberator too, but, you know, we, we really were buying the bat with Groshans. We really thought that you know, it was a potentially impact bat. Um, and the fact that we had the opportunity to save a little bit of money, which allowed us to pay, you know, overpay later in the draft for a talent like Loft was really just icing on the cake. You know, even if that hadn't been the case, um, Groshans probably would have still been our pick because we just felt like he was the best player out there. Um, right. But, you know, the same as with when we were talking about Pearson, it was, you know, either – you trust your evaluation, you don't, right? So if the industry thinks one thing and, and we feel like this guy's the best player on the board, then you, know, you just kind of got to go with it. Um, and now the industry agrees with and you. Fortunately, so far, he's very well. Now it agrees with you, Sorry? which is awesome. Now the industry agrees yeah, with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> it doesn't always happen. You know, we've, we've taken some chances at times that haven't worked out as well. But, you know, I think – like I said, Brian did a great job. Um, Steve Sanders, again, did a great job. All of our scouts truly did a great job doing the work on Groshans and identifying him as a guy who, you know, was worth maybe being out of line with the industry a little bit and, and being aggressive on. Um, and then it was just kind of a nice added bonus that, you know, we were able to go a little bit under slot there, which because of the mechanics of how draft caps work meant that we could spend more than our allotted value later in the draft, which allowed us to get cloth, um, you know, at a place that was a good bit later than he was projected to go. Um, so that was kind of an added benefit, but it wasn't, it wasn't what was primarily what we were thinking. It's interesting to see how much, you know, our prospects are all coming up at the same time. The window seems to be, a, you know, coordinated perfectly. Whereas you look at kind of other rebuilds in Detroit and in Miami that, you know, not everybody else is coming up at the same time. Yeah. What, what helped you guys become able to create a rebuild that would kind of synchronize just at the right time, like we are doing right now? You know, um, we're hopeful that within the next couple of years, it's all going to start to gel with, you know, all the prospect talent we have. Obviously we know that success isn't guaranteed with any of those guys, but, you know, we were hopeful that all these guys we've assembled, all these guys who've been working really hard are going to fulfill all their promise. Um, I think the biggest thing is probably just, all the work that our amateur department, our player development department, our international guys put in to identify talent. And, um, you know, some a lot of discipline on the part of, you know, pro scouting and Ross and Joe Sheehan and Mike Marove and kind of the decision makers and, you know, being really conservative about making sure we don't trade away guys we think are going to be really good. Um, so holding on to, you know, Vladdy and Bo and everyone back in 2016 and 2017, um, and holding on to the guys that we feel are going to be really special. And then augmenting that with, 
you know, drafting Bo, drafting Vigio, drafting, you know, Pearson, drafting uh, Kevin Smith, Manoa, Groshans, um, where I think that, you know, our, our drafts over the last four or five years have looked pretty good in retrospect. Um, and obviously there's a luck component there too. You know, we think we've been well prepared and done our work, but, you know, it's great that some guys have frankly overperformed, but we thought they'd do. So it's great when a player, you know, succeeds and makes you look stupid because you didn't know he was that good. Um, but we're hopeful that all that will turn into a lot of success at the major league level pretty soon. Another area of depth, like you, you guys are really in a good position because you're pretty much deep in every single position, and that is starting pitching in, in, in terms of the farm system. You have a bunch of guys, industrial-wise, because that's what we look at mostly, around the top 30, I'd say over half of them are actually starting pitchers. So how do you view, how are you going to be able to get them all up? Are you going to move some to relievers? How does that, how does that process work for you? Yeah, you know, we, uh, there's an old saying, there's no such thing as a, as a pitching prospect. Um, so we know that, you know, we know that while we like all these guys, we know they're not going to all work out, you know, and we feel, I think probably a year ago, we felt a little bit worse about where we were at in terms of starting pitching depth organizationally. And so, you know, between adding Alec Manoa, trading for Anthony Kay and Woods Richardson, adding a Thomas Hatch, um, and then just the development of some guys naturally with Nate Pearson having a full healthy season, you know, we feel a lot better about where we're at long-term. That said, you know, that's an area where you never have enough depth. So we're going to continue trying to add aggressively, you know, both in the draft internationally through trade, learning opportunities to, to add more talent. Um, and, you know, I think some of those guys probably naturally good major league relievers are guys who were at one point highly touted starters. Uh, we're hopeful that, some of them stay starters, you know, and that the core of the next good Blue Jays team is within our system. Um, some of whom are at the major league level now, you know, probably we'll see, you know, whether it's a TJ Zoic or Anthony Kay or, you know, Trent Thornton coming up last year, uh, guys who, you know, we believe can start in the major leagues, uh, you know, probably be seeing hopefully at some point this year, you know, kind of the way we saw, um, our position players really start to graduate last year. That's starting to happen this year with our pitchers. So a little bit more symmetry on that end. Yeah. So I, we, we, see, we see kind of the rebuild model that we're kind of going after right now. And we also see other teams that are doing it successfully, like San Diego. And San Diego is kind of doing their rebuild with kind of, the, you know, they signed Manny Machado, they signed Eric Cosmer. None of the deals have really worked out to what they've paid for. But that, just that mentorship is sort of bringing up the rest of the team. And even trading away guys like Fran Morea's electric talents that they've traded away in the past, they still have a young core that is able to be mentored by, you know, older guys. And would you see that as, you know, another reason why we signed Jinjin Ryu in the first place? You know, yeah, getting that you know, knowledge down. Yeah, you know, I think it's impossible to kind of put a price on what that kind of veteran leadership means. Um, you know, I think we definitely value it. We definitely value having guys who have been around for, but, and they're, you know, willing to kind of take players under their wing. Um, I think when you're signing a guy to <laughs> 20 or $30 million contract, you're, you're hoping that a lot of that guy is going to be on the field for you. Um, but definitely it helps to have a guy where you feel good about the human being too. Um, and we feel like we have, you know, a good clubhouse right now, a good group of guys, um, you know, a group that's going to hopefully win together and win the right way. Um, 
So I can't tell you that you, you pay a guy $16 million instead of 15 because of that influence or what the right dollar value is there, but it's definitely something to look up. Right. And another follow-up to that is Biggio kind of seems like the leader of this team um, in terms of, you know, the person he is and his qualities and traits as a person seems to kind of be maybe not the face of the team, but more the heart and soul of the team. Yeah. And how, how is that valued in, within the organization? Yeah, I think that his leadership and his makeup are valued highly. You know, I think that our player development guys had always had a lot of conviction that he was going to be that guy, that he was you know, going to overperform, going to keep improving, going to help other guys improve. And we're seeing that play out. Um, and, you know, you need guys like that to win. So, you know, we're happy that we feel like we, we have a few. Just another question about, about overall mentorship versus skill set. Do you think, well, obviously skill is more important, but on a scale of 1 to 10, let's say, how important would you rate the ability of leadership and mentorship versus pure skill? Oh, man, I, I couldn't put a number on it. Um, I think it probably depends on the person, you know. Um, depends how much guidance a guy needs or wants. Um, because you can have a bunch of veteran leaders, and if you can't play, it doesn't matter. Um, so I think it's probably more skill than veteran leadership. But you know, you got to have a few guys who are there to learn, to teach everybody else the ropes, to really uh, – you know, provide that. Um, but, you know, I mean, we had Curtis Craig Anderson in 2018, was it? Yeah, 2018. And, you know, he was about as good a guy as you could you know, possibly have. And we we're still a losing team, unfortunately. So you got to make sure you have the talent and you kind of make sure that you, you know, add the right mix of human beings into, into that talent. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Except for a good equation. Thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. And we're honored to have you on the show as our first guest. Yeah, obviously. No worries, guys. Good luck with this and stay safe with everything. Yeah, thank you. Obviously, the circumstances, it would have been better to do this in person, but we just got to make do. So thanks so much for coming on and being our first ever guest. And we wish you, all the, we wish you and your family all the best. Thank you. All right. Have take a great, it easy. For you. sure. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye.